conspiracy theories abound. Supposedly, 60% of the United States population believes that there was some kind of conspiracy behind JFK's assassination. 60%. Um, Many people, I've heard this said, that uh, maybe not many, but some people believe that the U.S. government ordered the planes to fly into the World Trade Center towers for various reasons. Now, probably most of us think maybe conspiracy theories like that or like some of those we just saw in that video are incredulous, are just kind of made up. But some conspiracy theories may be true. In fact, we find out about conspiracies that do seem to happen. Obviously, this ISIS group conspired secretly to kill thousands of Christians in Iraq. And they succeeded. They succeeded. Children's and, children and moms and dads have been slaughtered in, in, this, in the city in Iraq. It seems that in recent years, the, the uh, liberal um, anti-God, really anti-family agenda, these lobbying groups seem to be making headway in recent years in the United States. And so we think, well, you know, some of these conspiracies seem to happen And our response, I think, what's common for evangelical Christians in the United States is to kind of be afraid. We tend to respond in fear to what we think might be going on behind the scenes, and we think that they are anti-Christian, they meaning people that seem to have authority and power over us. We think that perhaps some people are um, wanting to see us extinguished or, or maybe just pacified so that we can't communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ and so we get afraid. Remember the Y2K days? We can laugh about that a little bit now, maybe. Can you smile a little bit about Y2K? I remember people, many people in the church that I was in when I was a teenager, when Y2K came through, they stocked up on wood-burning stoves. One family bought multiple wood-burning stoves so that they could sell them to people and make money when Y2K hit. So they bought multiple wood-burning stoves. Uh, some, some of them bought these, um, these stockpiles of oats and rice and wheat berries. Unfortunately, none of it really got used. My mom bought some rice and, wheat and a wheat grinder that she never used. We were afraid that doomsday, some kind of some kind of great evil, some type of chaos would befall us. And so as Christians, and I'm not saying it's wrong to be prepared. I'm not saying it's wrong to be prepared for disaster. Um, I'm not saying it's wrong to stock up food in case power goes out or something like that. But our response, I think, if you agree with me, you cannot. I think we often respond out of fear, though, to things like that. We're afraid that, that our way of life is going to be impacted by a conspiracy, by somebody who wants our way of life changed or wants to see us pushed to the fringes of society. And so we get afraid about what somebody might can be conspiring against us and maybe we stock up guns. Maybe we stock up lots of food. Maybe we move out into the wilderness and build a log cabin that's self-sustaining where we don't need electricity or running water. I know actually people that have done that. But that fear drives us to a deeper question, doesn't it? 
if there is conspiracy against Christianity, and we know that groups in the Middle East and and, in South America and in other places, they are conspiring to kill Christians. If there is conspiracy against us and our way of life or even the mission of God, our response of fear drives us to a deeper question rather than just uh, because our faith is being assaulted, let's stock up on guns and food and move to the wilderness. Drives us to a deeper question about where is our hope? In who or what are you hoping? Is it in your, your stockpile? Is it in what you can uh, collect for yourself? Is it in America? Is your hope in our Constitution? Is your hope in maybe an improvement in our government? If we get the right president, we know everything's going to be okay. Is that where you're putting your piggy bank? Is that where your hope is? And who or what are you hoping? Jesus and his disciples face the ultimate human conspiracy. The chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees all decided, okay, we're going to work together now. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were at enmity. They hated each other. They were at complete odds theologically, but the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the chief priests, they gathered this group, the Sanhedrin, 70 plus 1, the high priests, they gathered together and they formed the greatest human conspiracy known to mankind of all time, kill God, kill Jesus Christ. They didn't think Jesus was the Christ, they didn't think Jesus was God, but that was their conspiracy. We want to kill Jesus, we want to Get him out of the picture because he's going to damage our way of life. He's going to take away our, our, our power, our position, our possessions. And because Jesus is a threat to us, we want to see him dead. Jesus wanted to teach his disciples something about hope. What it really meant to live by faith. What it meant to follow God's mission to the very end, even to the cross. The Gospel of John lays out this pattern for us to look at as believers. How are we to live with hope? With hope. In what should we be hoping when it seems that people are conspiring against us, against our Savior? So let's do a little flashback. We're now at the midway point through the Gospel of John series, Believe, Receiving New Life in Jesus. Chapter 11, we're going to finish the end of chapter 11. Then we're going to go through, as Pastor Tom mentioned, through the letter of Peter, the first letter of Peter, which is kind of a lot about this same stuff, how to live radically in hope in Jesus Christ in a world that is hostile to Christian faith. But where has John, the apostle, taken us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write the good news of God, the good news about Jesus Christ? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In Him was life, and the life was the the light of men. The light shines on in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. It could not frustrate it. But then John the Baptist, he took the witness stand for Jesus, and he shouted out, The Lamb, the Lamb of God, the the one who would take away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist sent by God to prepare the way for the one who would bring life and light. But then the story begins to unfold. John chapter 2, Jesus inaugurates his public ministry at a wedding celebration. And he makes water into the best wine. 
In John chapter 3, Jesus meets this religious, this super religious man, Nicodemus, in the dark of night. And Nicodemus is in, in the dark spiritually. And Jesus communicates the light of the gospel to Nicodemus, this super religious man. And he walks with him out of spiritual ignorance and darkness into the light of the gospel. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets this sex addict from Samaria. The Samaritan woman by Jacob's well, and he communicates the gospel to her, what it means to really be a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. And she becomes a gospel-telling worshiper of God. She becomes an evangelist. She runs back to her village, and she says, you got to come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And they said, oh boy, we better meet this guy. And they, many, come to faith in Christ in Samaria, the place that was ostracized from the good Jews, you know the half-breeds in Samaria. Later on in John chapter 4, Jesus heals the royal official's son. He was also kind of on the fringes. Uh, The Pharisees would not have liked this nobleman, this royal official from Herod's court. Jesus heals his son. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man by the pool of Bethesda. Remember the story. He was ill for 38 years. 38 years. The average lifespan of a man back then was maybe 40, 50 years, 38 years. He's been by the pool of Bethesda, most likely physically disabled. That's why he couldn't get in the pool by himself. Remember the story. So Jesus heals the man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, and the plot thickens. The conspiracy begins to develop. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people, 5,000 men plus women and children, so maybe 10, maybe 12,000 people. He feeds them by the Sea of Galilee, and they want to make him king on the spot. All of this bears witness to who he is. All that he says is pointing towards who he is. Later on in John chapter 6, he walks on the water. His disciples see him walking on the water. Whoa. These aren't crazy guys. They write this down because they saw it with their own eyes. And then through John chapter 6 later on and 7 and 8, everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did is pointing towards who Jesus is. He amazes even the chief priests and the Pharisees. These, these police officers, these officers of the temple court, they come back and they say, we've never heard a man speak like him. And of course, they'd been hearing the Pharisees teach all their lives. Bearing witness to who Jesus is. There's something different about this Jesus. In John chapter 9, he heals the man born blind. Born blind. All throughout rabbinic tradition, they would always say, only God can heal somebody who's born blind. Some of they forget about that when the man is healed who was born blind. John chapter 10 Jesus again teaches and amazes the crowds. John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It seems like the ultimate sign. It's the seventh sign in the gospel of John. He raised his loved one, his close friend, the brother of Mary and Martha, his close friend. He he raises Lazarus from the dead, and there's a crowd around. They all see it. He's been in the tomb for four days, and he's raised from the dead. And the response from the crowd is many choose to believe in him as the Messiah, as the God-man, as the one who will bring life 
and they hang on his words, and they watch his works, and they believe. But some don't receive. Some go and rat on Jesus. And all throughout those, those teachings and those signs, there's this split like that. There's this great divide between those who receive him and those who reject him. And it goes back and forth like that over and over. But this is the, this is the penultimate. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Many are choosing to believe in him. And the conspiracy heightens to the top. They choose to run back. Run back to the Pharisees and they tell them Did you see what Jesus did? Did you hear about it? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 47. This is where we're going to pick up this this story, end of the first half of the Gospel of John. Everything's pointing towards who Jesus is. He's more than just a man. He's God in the flesh. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Jesus is doing many things. So, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. The word is Sanhedrin. Have you heard that before? Sanhedrin or Sanhedrion. So they they gather together. I, I take it as literally the council of 70 plus the high priest. This is the supreme court of the Jews. So they form together the Supreme Court and they say, Jesus is doing many things. What are we doing? See the question? It's it's almost hilarious. They say, and we're saying, they were saying, it means they kept going on and on. What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? We're sitting on our hands and he's out there doing many signs. Your Bible might say performing many signs, but in the original language in Koine Greek, it's the same root word. It means doing. So what are we doing? He's doing, and we're doing nothing. What's going on? Why are they so concerned? Why have they met as the council of 70, as the Sanhedrin? Because they're afraid. They're afraid. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, like they're in charge. That's, if we let him go on like this. He's been at it for three years, and every time they confront him, they're the ones who walk away astounded and amazed and shamed, really, by his wisdom because they don't have the wisdom of the God-man, and they think, if we let him go on like this. All men, everyone is really the word. Everyone will believe in him. Everyone will. And what does that mean? If everybody follows this Jesus, there's 70 guys, pop and circumstance, ostentatious, Really kind of full of themselves. Really kind of full of themselves and very wealthy because they've been fleecing the people through. You see how it goes here? You're going to find this, this guy surface. His name is Caiaphas, but he was the son in law. So his wife was the daughter of Annas, who had been high priest for many years before. And so Annas, the, the high priest, in fact, later on, they call him the high priest because he had that influence. He was older and he, was, he had. I guess, married into, or or he had made sure that his daughters marry all these guys, and so now they're kind of working under him, and his sons had been high priests as well, and they go on a rotation like this, and Caiaphas is his son-in-law, and so he's really kind of the puppet of Annas, and Annas is extremely wealthy. You've heard me talk about Annas' bazaar. 
Annas's kind of marketplace that he's created. So people have to come in and use the temple money and buy at extremely high rates. And Annas was getting kickbacks from all this. And so they're extremely wealthy. They have their place. They're afraid that if they go, let Jesus go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him and the Romans will come and will take away both our place and our nation. Do you see how they, they, they've missed it already? Our place. Our position, but it's also not just their position sitting on their seats in the temple, but the temple itself. The Romans are going to take away our place, our temple, and our place, because this is our place. It's all about self-protection, preserving their way of life, and our nation. Our nation, it's not really God's nation or God's temple, it's ours. It's ours. If we let Jesus go on, see the people beginning to follow Jesus and some of them were zealots, so they were fearful that an insurrection would start. A civil insurrection would begin and the Romans would come. They would no longer trust the Sanhedrin to keep the people at bay and in control and so they would come in and wipe out their position that's what they're afraid of. That's what they're afraid of. So, Caiaphas, the man I mentioned before, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he was high priest many years before that. He would be high priest for three more years. Excuse me, one more year, till eighty thirty-four. He, they're not saying just that year, but that fateful year. You're going to see that year repeated again. But one of them, Caiaphas, was high priest that fateful year, that year when Jesus died, said to them, you know nothing at all. The way we would put that is, you know what you're talking about. You guys are fools. You know nothing. Stupid chatter. Apparently, Josephus said, of course, he was a Pharisee, but he said the Sadducees would often communicate like that to each other. They were just rude, brutish people. And he was certainly not unbiased. You know nothing at all, he shouts out, nor do you take into account that it is expedient. It is to your advantage. It is expedient for you that one man die for the people, the crowds, and that the whole nation not perish. You see? If one man dies on behalf of the people, then we'll keep our place. The nation will be kept together. Everything will be okay. You can go on and on and on about what we're not doing and what he's doing, but really you just need to kill him. It's sacrificial language that he uses. Huper, on behalf of, above. On behalf of the people, one man must die. The Lamb of God? That's how it began, right? John the Baptist, the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb who would be sacrificed. And now Caiaphas, the high priest, being high priest that year, considered to be even the mouthpiece of God to the people. That's how they thought of him. He needs to be taken out of the way and everything else will be okay. But there's two pieces of irony here. Here's what really happened. The Sanhedrin had this goal that if, <laughs> that, that if um, the Romans came and, and took away their place in their nation, that they'd acted on this, 
If, if Jesus was dealt with, then they wouldn't lose their place in their nation, their position, the temple. But shortly after Jesus was crucified, the people followed false shepherds, and the Romans came anyways, and they wiped out the temple in AD 70. It was destroyed. Annas lost all of his wealth. Everything was taken away. It was all gone. It was destroyed. They thought they had their plans for self-protection, but it didn't work. And then Caiaphas, look down at verse 51, 52. Here's John the Apostle's explanation looking back on this story. He sees this amazing twist in it. So there's this twist with the Sanhedrin. They're trying to self-protect to keep their place and their position, their money, their power. And he knows it doesn't, 80, 70, it's all going to be wiped out. God knows that. And here's the other twist that we're going to see. Verse 51, now he did not say this on his own initiative from himself. But being high priest that fateful year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one. This is where we as Gentiles jump up and down for joy because if it were not for this, we would not be part of the family of God. That he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. First Peter begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Those who've been scattered, the initial Jewish audience would see this as, oh, maybe the, the Jewish people scattered throughout the diaspora, the dispersion around the Mediterranean Sea. But God has even a bigger plan than that. He has a bigger plan. He had a bigger plan. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about this, that even though we were far away and apart from God, we had been brought in here by the blood of Christ, and now we're part of this holy temple being built in the Lord. Foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus and Christ himself being the cornerstone. And so we, even though we were scattered, God had his chosen, has his chosen. This is talking about election here. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 10, verse 16. The good shepherd, remember in John chapter 10, he says, verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. So there's some people immediately there believing other sheep which are not of this fold outside of the Jewish nation. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Look at that through 52, verse 52, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, into one. Isn't that good? You're part of that one. You're part of the family of God. If you have trusted in the atoning, substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you are part of that one, that family of God. You are a child of God. You are scattered. You are part. He's brought you in. He's brought you in. Reject how you're elect through Jesus Christ. So Caiaphas, here's the irony with Caiaphas, here's the twist with Caiaphas. He thinks he's saying, kill Jesus, we'll be okay. God overrules. He didn't even realize it. It wasn't from himself, it wasn't his own initiative. God's sovereignty overruled the Sanhedrin's plan for self-protection with his sovereign plan of redemption. Caiaphas didn't know it. 
God had planned it all along. There was no stopping it. They thought that if they wiped out Christ, this whole thing would be done, but the mouths would not be stopped. The mission of God would keep going forward. Jesus Christ would go to the cross. He would be raised from the dead. He would ascend to the Father. His disciples would go out. Nothing would stop them because all authority has been given. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 through 20? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, gathering the scattered by the proclamation of the gospel through the drawing of the Holy Spirit into God's family. And nothing will stop that. No human conspiracy will stop God's mission. It will not end. God's mission will not be thwarted. It will not be brought under demise, even if America falls. Really. Even if we lose our way of life. Really. Even if we're afraid. Really. God's sovereignty will overrule. Just as God's sovereignty overruled the Sanhedrin's plan for self-protection with his sovereign plan for redemption, God's sovereignty overrules every human conspiracy every time, even right now. His mission will not stop. It will go forward. And there will be a day when Jesus Christ returns and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end. And we can trust in that now. God's sovereignty will overrule every human conspiracy every time. Every time. You see how this plays out? That's... The always, the then was God's sovereignty shows up in this passage. It's not going to stop. But always, it happens all the time. God's sovereign plan is always going forward. Think about it. China. China has tried to stamp out Christianity through communism for a long, long time. And the church keeps blossoming. And the church keeps growing. Even underground, my brother-in-law and his wife have been in China for the last two and a half years. The church keeps growing. Christians are now infiltrating the government because more people are coming to faith in Christ. It's not going to stop. God's sovereignty overrules human conspiracy every time. The USSR tried to stamp out Christianity through atheism. We have Mark and, uh, Carl and Lori Kresge ministering to people that were... In the, their nations would have been in the USSR. The Christians are now spreading all across Russia, Eastern Europe. It, it didn't stop it. It didn't extinguish Christian faith. USSR couldn't do it. Atheism won't do it. In India, where I served for just five weeks, the government was continually trying to clamp down on what we could do. We couldn't pass out gospel tracts in the villages. As foreigners, we, only had, we could only get a vacation or visitor uh, visa. But you know what? The National Christians, the, the mission's spreading like breakneck speed in India. Faster than you and I can even imagine people are coming to faith in Christ in India. In South America... Countries have been trying to sort of neutralize Christianity and vibrant Christian faith through Marxism for years. It's not stopping in Latin America. The, the church of God is growing and growing and growing faster and faster and faster. Here in the United States, liberal denominations, liberal churches, liberal ideology, liberal theology, meaning they deny 
that Jesus is the God-man. They deny that this book is, his, is God's living word. They've been trying to pacify, trying to neuter evangelical Christian faith for 120 years, and it won't work. Gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches in many parts of our nation are growing, and the liberal churches are emptying. See, it's God's sovereignty always overrules human conspiracy every time, and we'll see that ultimate when Jesus Christ returns. God always overrules. He rules. He wins. He reigns. So if God's sovereignty overruled the Sanhedrin's plot, and if he's doing it now, you can hope today. Do you believe that you can hope today when the conspiracy theories are swirling, but maybe... A governor you like has been thrown into jail or indicted. It's amazing how this stuff surfaces in the news, and I don't plan on it coming into the news. Really. God's word always speaks to today because God is always working. And he's alive. But you have fear today. You can hope in God's sovereignty. You can hope that his plan will go forward. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to say, all right, in order for me to be okay, I need to stock up and protect myself and run for cover. The disciples didn't run for cover. For a little while, they tried to stay in Jerusalem. But then God kept pushing them out by persecution. Maybe that's what God might do with us too a little bit. He might end up pushing us out to go preach the gospel and be unashamed even when we're afraid. That's what he's been doing since the beginning of the church. Look at verse 52 again. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered. So here's the result from this council. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The plot was set, the plan was hatched. It looked like they were going to win. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Is Jesus afraid? Is that why he's doing this? No. He's walking perfectly according to the timetable of the Father by God's ordered will and by his volitional act to walk according to God's schedule. He would not be brought to the cross ahead of time, only at his time. So he goes to Ephraim, which is about 20 miles, 15, 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And here we get a little whisper from the crowds again. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, the celebration. The, now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus. The people want to know where Jesus is. And were saying to one another as they stood in the temple... What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They think he's not going to come because they know that there are wanted signs. You know, like the old Wild West, you see a wanted sign, Jesse James or whatever. 
as it were, they're like wanted signs everywhere. We want Jesus dead. If you hear anything about him, tell us so we're going to go arrest him. So the people are wondering, hey, he's probably not going to come. He's probably not going to come because he doesn't want to die. That's what they think. That's what they think. Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. What they don't know is that Jesus will come. And he will die. But his plan of redemption will overrule. It will overrule. God's sovereignty is working even in the midst of any human conspiracy. It overrules it, you can hope. Every evening, most every evening, I tell Hudson his bedtime stories. And my dad told my brother and I bedtime stories. They're not, I don't know, maybe some of you do this, but my dad's kind of like over the top with bedtime stories. He developed characters, and I'm using the same characters. Herman the Hermit, Rusty the Trusty Dog, Flapjack Frying Pan, Susquatch the Abominable Snowman occasionally. Uh, Sometimes we throw in Mr. Peabody and Sherman and other people from history. Every evening, usually, and last night was the same, Hudson and I lay in his bed and tell him a story about Herman the Hermit, Rusty the Trusty Dog, and Flapjack Frying Pan, and they'd be going on this time travel train across history. And Hudson's really into the stories. And usually, especially if I'm tired, the end of the story leaves with tension unresolved because I don't really want to end it all, you know. And so I say, until next time, with the adventures of Herman the Hermit, Rusty the Trusty Dog, and Flapjack Frying Pan. And Hudson goes, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen next? I say, until next time. (laughs) Television shows use the to be continued. They're like, ah. George Lucas made millions and billions of dollars off saying to be continued, you know, the trilogy. So we wait, we wait. What's going to happen? God knows what's going to happen. This twist, this irony here that makes us almost laugh, like they were trying to save their position in power and they lost it. Caiaphas here, he's trying to protect himself. He doesn't even realize that what he's prophesying is about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on behalf of the sins of the world so that the lost could be found, so that those who were blind could see, so that the dead could be made alive, so that the scattered could be one. He doesn't even see that because God's sovereignty always overrules human conspiracy every time, even today. Even today. You can hope today. You can believe today that God is working out his plan even if they're putting fluoride in our water or, or some other conspiracy theory or if Rick Perry's in prison or whatever it might be. God's working out a plan even beyond our nation because we've been commissioned to go to all the nations with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the power of the gospel. That's our mission and God will not let that be stopped. Would you bow your heads with me? I want you to listen to these words from a song that I listened to probably, probably 10 or 15 times this past week. It's called, Nothing Ever Can, Nothing Ever Will. Words are by Ross King. Every power on earth and in heaven is a shadow in his light. No authority, law, or government challenges his sovereign might. His reign and rule have no boundary. All that is in his hands have wrought 
Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. We are well aware we were orphans once, bent and broken in our shame. Then he sought us out and adopted us. Now we bear his royal name. Every sin or crime we have ever done is no match for Jesus' blood. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. We are rescued out of darkest night, free from Satan's evil hold. And the kingdom of our Savior's light is our soul's eternal home. Though the enemy tries to steal and kill what the death of Christ has bought, nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. Our God is victorious. He always wins. He always wins. In love, he reigns over us. He always wins. He always wins. We, the church, declare Jesus Christ is king, for he conquered death once for all. We will live in light of his victory, following his gospel call. And when the story ends, we know Jesus wins, for his power cannot be stopped. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. And with your eyes still closed, I want you to think about this. I know how the story is going to go when I leave it unresolved for Hudson. God knows even more perfectly and powerfully exactly how the story will go because he's the one writing the story. He's the author and we can trust the son today because he's the author and finisher of our faith. Do you agree with that? Tell that to God, not to me. Say, Lord, I agree. I will hope today in your sovereignty that it overrules every human conspiracy, that you are all-powerful, and you will win. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness that we were scattered, but you brought us to be one, a part of your family. Lord, we pray that you would increase our hope in you, that we will live out that hope in a world that may have people conspiring against us, We know that they conspired against your son. And even that, you had a twist. An amazing irony, a shock even to them that though they thought they were winning and Satan thought he'd won, you overcome. Lord, we ask, oh God, that you would fill us with renewed hope, stronger faith to proclaim the gospel without shame because we know that you own the end of the story. In Jesus' name, amen.